if you have 11 David Beckhams, they'll lose every game because no one will pass the ball because every David Beckham wants to hold on to the ball itself. So it's a team-based competency. Yes, you have to have a shared mental mindset, but someone has to pass the ball to the shooter. And that's vitally important. Welcome to War Docs. This show brings you a firsthand behind the scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of military physicians. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, WarDocs has you covered. I'm your host, Dr. Doug Soderdahl, retired Army urologist, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Wayne Causey, active duty vascular surgeon. On this episode, we are privileged to welcome Colonel Paul Parker, a British Army orthopedic surgeon, to WarDocs. Mr. Parker qualified in medicine from Queen's University, Belfast in 1985. After finishing medical school, Colonel Parker attended Sandhurst Military Academy and then went on to spend two years overseas on military duty in Central America and Germany. He trained as a military orthopedic surgeon in London, Edinburgh, and at the world-renowned Shock Trauma Center in Baltimore, where he developed his interest in trauma resuscitation and reconstruction. He has undertaken multiple overseas tours with conventional forces and special operations forces. He is currently a consultant in trauma and orthopedic surgeon at Queen Elizabeth Hospital in Birmingham. You can read his full bio on wardocspodcast.com. On this episode of Wardocs, we're privileged to welcome British Army Colonel and consultant in trauma and orthopedic surgeon, Mr. Paul Parker. Paul, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. Tell us a little bit about your background and how you became interested in military medicine and trauma in particular, and how is training in the British healthcare system different than what we might be used to in the United States? Okay, well, I'm glad you asked me such a short question, but um, I suppose I was at medical school during the Falklands War, which I know was a long time ago. I've been in the Army a long time, but in 82, I was watching the Falklands War and um, I applied to join the Air Force and they sort of turned me down and I came across and met a guy called Jim Ryan who'd uh, just come back from the Falklands. This is towards the end of 82. And he was this parachute train, sort of trauma surgeon, just back from the war, back from the Falklands, you know, great looking guy. And I thought, that's the guy I want to be. I was only a second year medical student at that stage. And so I signed on the line and signed my life away in uh, 1983, which for many people is, to me, it's just yesterday, but that's actually a, a little way ago. And I suppose I haven't looked back in a year or so's time, that'll be 40 years time in the army sort of institutionalized. I guess initially I was just going to join for a few years, then go back to, to Northern Ireland. But as I traveled the world and lived in Germany for a bit and did some time in Central America, I realized that the life of seeing the world imperfect as it sometimes was, was, a, um, was an interesting place to be. In terms of Training. We back in the eighties, of course, nineties. We did have hospitals um, like you did in Germany and Hong Kong and uh, other parts of the world. And then, as we've sort of moved away and sort of decolonialized, as some people would say, we've sort of reduced the number of hospitals. So actually, we, when I was more advanced in my training, we didn't actually have any military hospitals to train in, and our training was then centered around actually UK training pathways. So we would generally be attached to you know. Edinburgh, like I was, where I am actually today, uh, for your sort of higher surgical training and London, other parts, other towns. So although you were in a military training program, you're actually in the NHS being trained. And then I had the benefit of spending a year um, in the United States at Shock Trauma, did a trauma fellowship at Shock Trauma, which for many years was a busier surgical fellowship than any of the wars that I that I'd been to. So overall, we have a sort of six-year orthopedic trauma training pathway where we try and get the best experience we can and learn from the best. And I became an attending or a consultant in 1998. Uh, so I've been an attending or consultant for about 23 years now. 
I really enjoyed the quote that you put on one of your recent articles, and that was from Aldous Huxley. It said, the only consistent lesson of history is that men do not learn the lessons of history. And, and that was an editorial you wrote about surgical lessons learned during Operation Herrick, and that's the British mission in Helmand province, Afghanistan. What lessons have we forgotten, and, and how do we keep from forgetting them in the future? It's true. I mean, people used to talk about lessons learned, but even some, well, some people are now saying it's, it is lessons identified. We look at, I mean, that was our fourth Afghan war. I better not get too involved in that. But those those lessons that we identified from that, they, they've been repeated all through history. We're making great strides, um, US, UK, Germany, Scandinavia, particularly in forward blood transfusion. But we forget that in 1917, at the Third Battle of Ypres, you know, where we I didn't, but you know, my predecessors took blood forward to the trenches in 1917, cross-match blood, screened for syphilis, and that was 1970. And we think about we're taking blood forward now that done 104 years ago. And again, similarly in the Spanish Civil War, 36, 37, basically they took blood in glass flasks forward to to the front line and on mules. And it was in those that in those days they coined the phrase take the blood to the patient not the patient to the blood and then with your helicopters and our mert we in the afghan conflict began to put blood back on the helicopters telling ourselves hey we've we decided to do this but we're actually reinventing the wheel and something was done a hundred years ago forward splintage forward surgery again taking the surgeon forward on the battlefield not too far forward but um, but basically forward in the battlefield to save lives those lessons were learned you know again 100 dressing stations of the first world war we look at how tcc that's tactical combat casualty care has come back to blood fresh old blood as the resuscitation fluid and look at the iterations from vietnam where a lot of fluid a lot of saline was used lung problems called danang lung which we now realize was adult respiratory distress syndrome you know, those things, we, we knew those in the 60s and the 70s. And there are pictures, of course, of Corman on Omaha Beach in 1944 with glass bottles of freeze-dried plasma. And yet now, over the last few years, we're looking again to give freeze-dried plasma, lyoplas or other, to Corman, to medics, to actually take forward. And again, that was done in the Second World War. Uh, freeze-dried plasma brought across in the States on Omaha Beach and, and also blood well so those things we have forgotten we try them i try and write these things down and you try and pass them on in various courses that i teach on both to civilians and and military but it's 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 tricky we just seem to sort of close the book and move on so how do we know that these lessons that we identify are going to apply for the next conflict how do you think we should use these to prepare for peer-to-peer -peer or high energy weaponry times in which we don't necessarily control the airspace for evacuation or air superiority you're right. We've had the luxury of virtually complete air superiority in the, con the recent conflicts in Afghanistan and Iraq, in Africa and the like. And we look at the enemies, not necessarily quite peer to peer, but if we look at what look at what we've left behind in Afghanistan, we look at what um, Iran has, if we look at what North Korea, China has, is that we will not in any way have air superiority in the in the next war. And we only have to have, as we know, only so many helicopters shot down to stop the cancelback process. So I think we have to turn the page and look to, to be honest, what Amazon is doing, what a company called Zipline is doing in Africa, where in Malawi and Rwanda, 85% of all blood products supplied outside the capital area are taken by, by drone, by simple battery-powered drones with ranges of you know 300 kilometers, as a, for instance, if a, if a woman is you know giving birth in, in Rwanda, Malawi, and gets a postpartum hemorrhage, that's a bleeding after birth. They simply WhatsApp and blood is, is brought forward. 
and dropped by parachute into the remote clinic. So that's stuff going forward. Stuff coming back, I think, is going to be uh, casually. We're going to see, in my life and I hope, casualty evacuation by drone, where I think in the first iteration, a, a cargo drone, and the US Marines are sort of leading on this, where a cargo drone comes forward and drops off um, ammunition, rations, and water. And you've got a you've got a casualty with a gunshot wound to the leg. You've got mm, poor air superiority. So you can keep this soldier, sailor, airman, marine with you and knowing that it's going to be several days before a, a rescue mission comes. Or you could stick him or her into the back of the drone with appropriate care. We'll talk about that in a sec. And they can be put into the drone and the drone will fly pretty much like a Tomahawk cruise missile, with non-jammable GPS, LIDAR and Earth-following radar, and you press the button and back it goes to the Roll 2 or Roll 3. With modern drones can fly at 300 kilometers an hour, the 300 miles an hour Roll 2 can be in the next country. And we need to look at now what we can do, whether it's advanced junctional tourniquets, abdominal phones, uh, in-flight warming, in-flight blood transfusion, because I think it's going to come in the next five years. We'll see drone ambulances on the battlefield. But initially, it'll be a cargo drone brings kit forward, and we will stick it casually in that, and back they'll go. So I mean, that, that kind of puts the importance and you know, going to the, the NATO allied joint doctrine for medical support of the 10, one, two concept of, you know, trying to get, you know, that tactical care within 10 minutes and then, you know, some damage control surgery, maybe in an hour, um, and then definitive surgical care within two hours, our reliance on under fire tactical field care is going to become even more important. What are the competencies required by these true first responders, the medics, and how do we train that? I think we have to look at, you know, what what works, you know, tourniquets, advanced tourniquets, you know, the pneumatic tourniquets are better. What we know from our US and UK data, if you're unfortunately wounded in a named vessel in your torso, is that you're unlikely to survive. And you're, you're what's called a hoser. You're hosing out blood and you'll die within that first platinum 10 minutes. And even if the surgeon, surgical team was on the battlefield, those people probably couldn't be saved. But the ones that remain are called tricklers, and they will, they're just trickling out blood, maybe 20, 30 mils a minute. And they don't need initially surgery. What they need is someone to trickle blood back in. And the question is, where do you get that fresh whole blood from? Now, it's easiest, of course, if you've got a, a bag of fresh whole blood with you. But the benefit is we all carry five litres of um, fresh whole blood around with us. And Certainly following the Norwegian and the, the, what's called the Thor Symposium is that they pre-cross match people, pre-screen them on the battlefields, so even in a small patrol house, eight, 10 people pre-screened the troops. So if um, Sven or Eric gets injured, uh, you know that at least three or four other people, perhaps with what's called O low teeter, negative blood or positive blood. And you can take two or three units from these guys and girls and transfuse it directly into the wounded soldier while they're trickling out internally, need surgery at some stage, you can be trickling blood back in while you're waiting for the casamac. And in Norwegian Special Forces particularly, behind their body armor plate, they carry a blood collection bag. So even in the middle of nowhere, you've got your body armor, you reach behind your body armor plate, you reach around for the buddy, you take 400, 500 of fresh, hot, whole blood from them, including the cells, the platelets, the plasma, and transfuse it into the, the wounded person. And despite all the tech and everything else we talk about, that's probably one of the life-saving things. So blood far forward. And US Army Rangers are read on this with the ROLO, which is the Ranger Olo Teeter program taking blood forward. We look at this with our airborne forces called the Polo program, which is a, a suite here, but parachute Olo Teeter blood. Just blood forward is going to be one of the major things. And as we look at the new technologies, abdominal foams, junctional tourniquets and the like, they're going to be life-saving interventions while you're waiting to get that patient rapidly transported to the surgical team. Because as we say, despite all the tech that the simple first aid issues of airway control to 
detection and treatment of pneumothorax, cessation of massive hemorrhage, still those things for hot, dusty soldiers and sailors. So you've written about and been involved in pre-deployment training for small teams. What lessons have you learned from that experience and how much should we focus on individual skills versus collective team training? You know, what we say, you know, if you've got a David Beckham, great footballer, well, he was, but he is, he probably still is a great footballer. But if you have 11 David Beckhams, they'll lose every game because no one will pass the ball because every David Beckham wants to hold on to the ball itself. So it's a team-based competency. Yes, you have to have a shared mental mindset, but someone has to pass the ball to the shooter. And that's vitally important. So it's an individual team competency, both for, you know, our smallest team probably is two surgeons, two anesthetists, and three sort of operating department, um, two or three operating department techs. And you can't just throw that team together and ask them to deliver life-saving surgery. They have to be pre-trained. You've got to iron out some, not all, because a little bit of internal conflict is good. We've looked at people who trained our, our best rowing teams at Oxford and Cambridge. We've had them come and speak to us about how you deliver the best outcomes. And actually, of course, it's training together is the key. And if you stress a team, not quite to breaking point, the more you stress a team, the harder they begin to bond, you know, storm, norm, form, the harder they, the harder they begin to work together and deliver the outcome. So we look at some courses. There's one I'm involved in. It's called the Special Operations Surgical Team Development Course. That takes place at Mons in Belgium. I'm clinical director of that. And we take a team. We go through kit, we go through concepts, shared models, basics, you know, basics of um, SF operations, rep repetition, simplicity, how to get through the frictions, frictions of war. But then we go through increasingly complex scenarios based either perhaps in a submarine, in a helicopter, in a C-130 Hercules, with noise, vibration, smell, added in distractions. And we video it. And what's really interesting in a very positive adult learning environment is you can show people that sometimes they, when they're stressed, and they are stressed, because there's no point in not being stressed because if you're not stressed, then something's wrong. But and for, as a, for instance, you know, we watched one team and one of the members of the team just stood still for 14 minutes. And after in the debrief, we said, you stood still for 14 minutes. The person said, well, no, I didn't. I said, well, you did not. And they were, they were absolutely certain that during the stressful resuscitation that, and we started to roll the video. And after six, seven minutes, the person said, okay, I get it. And what we see is that when you're stressed, sometimes you, if you don't recognize it, you'll do nothing. So when you're stressed, you recognize that. So people, will, people when they're stressed will default to inaction. They will start, they'll just do nothing. They'll find something comfortable like holding a bag of fluid or something, but not really actually doing anything positive. And they need to recognize that and then default to, to action. So we make the scenarios more complex, there's more internal, external play. And by the end of a week, they've got their voice communication done much, much better, particularly in a noisy environment where they're using um, you know, microphones and headphones. They're just beginning to gel as a team and then they're ready to go. And often you can just see when they leave, they're excited because they know they can now do it. And if you can operate in a plane or a submarine, then you can operate anywhere. So you have ex extensive experience deploying under austere conditions around the globe. Do you have any memorable cases or stories from these deployments that you'd like to share? I think things like early days of Afghanistan, you know, it was war fighting and the like. And, and then just one day, this helicopter arrived. We got no real notice that a pa patient was coming in. And suddenly into our hospital full of, you know, blokes in body armor and the like was brought this, um, just this three-year-old girl. And basically she'd been involved in, a, in an explosion. And unfortunately, most of the family had been killed. And the father was just actually burying the rest of the family. And he noticed this young girl, her name was Galali, just was, which means flower in Afghan. She was moving and so she was brought us, brought into us, um, meningitic with, um, you know, obviously clearly penetra decreased level of consciousness, penetrating skull wound. 
And like myself and my colleague Alan, we had no, we weren't neurosurgeons or whatever, and you know, looked at the book. So shaved the head, and we found out, you know, she'd compound depressed skull fracture, multiple penetrating bone fragments. And we just had the book open on neurosurgery beside us and just went through the debrided the complex depressed skull fracture, removed the bits of um, bone and bits of bone and bits of metal from the dura, cleaned, sewed things up and went back to the ward and she woke up. And then we had this, you know, this three this three-year-old baby and what do we do? And the nurses were were really, really good. They sort of made little baby grows for her from their from their old t-shirts. They used some of their san- sanitary products to make nappies for her because we had no we had no nappies or anything for us. And for a while, she was like with us almost as a mascot. We knew we had to get her back to her village, but we had no reverse Kazavak. But she was with us for a while. I've got some pictures of me, you know, feeding her from a bottle and stuff. And it does maybe bring back what we're fighting for to try and you know um, what we were fighting for that girl just i wonder what's become of her now that was in i think uh 2006 so you know she'd be an, an adult now i just wonder what's become of her you know what's he been trying to do good and i think that's one of the cases that stands out for me what would you say is the most challenging deployment case you have I think probably that was Iraq in zero three. We had a, um, you know, just again, we're sort of war fighting and just, you know, shoulder to shoulder. And we had, a, had the mobile surgical team going up from into, um, um, through the Romalia oil fields. We had a note that, you know, a Kazakh was coming in with a guy who'd been ejected from his, his Land Rover as it had rolled. And he came in and it was clearly he was really not well. And we got an x-ray and it showed they had a, his pelvis was split apart. He had what's called an APC3 pelvis where the whole back of the pelvis was split off. And he was clearly very, very sort of shocked and the uh, the like. He was, he was blood group. A, a negative, a positive. And so we put a pelvic X fix on him. And, um, and then with my, my colleague, and um, we had a, he was still unstable, had to pack his pelvis, open his belly, pack the pelvis, tie off one of the internal iliacs. And still he was still bleeding. And we actually at this stage ran out of blood. And so it was like in the middle of nowhere, pretty dire situation. But we just unscreened, put a call out, and we got nine members of the camp, including our sergeant major, the dentist, who's still my dentist, actually, and a, um, members of the band, because we Brits like to have a band place sometimes as we're sort of marching off to, to battle. But the band also, to be fair, also act as stretcher bearers during time of conflict. So so we find nine people, also the sergeant major. So basically we find nine people and got nine units of uh, of a, a, a negative, a positive blood and transfused this guy overnight until the helicopter Kazovac team could come and take him away. And he survived. And I got a picture of him meeting the Queen about three months later at a garden party and just, again, a group effort to um, to save. And again, you know, that was almost 20, 15, 20 years ago, you know, fresh whole blood forward. You know, one thing that was interesting in, in, in reading about the UK experience was you had sometimes where senior trainees, you know, residents in the United States were deployed and were providing care with the consultants there. How was that experience? And how do you know you have the right case mix to support that for a trainee? What we know is that, you know, if you've never deployed, if, if as a consultant, for whatever reason, that's your first deployment, the shock of almost the shock of capture is, is pretty massive. And just to be clear, you know, no trainees were, were unsupervised for us. And it's not just to do sort of blood prescriptions and stuff in the middle of the night. But we realized actually there's a great value in um, getting trainees to come and be part of the, the surgical team, the medical team as well for what we call disease, non-battle battle injury, which is mostly diarrhea. And I've written up some papers with some of my, my colleagues. And in terms of the trauma experience, what we've shown is that a six-week deployment for a trainee to Afghan at the at the height of the war fighting 
was equivalent probably to a year or a year and a half of trauma training in the United Kingdom. It was just such an exposure to not just the surgery, but the resuscitation, the decision-making, the blood, the whole blood, the blood transfusion and the like. And their logbooks were, were really good in terms of what they got to do, supervised operating. And all my colleagues who are now consultants, they really look back at the time when they were registrar with a senior consultant attending with them. So, so when they were deployed by themselves a year or so later, two years later, they still had the lessons in their head from that um, from that time. So therefore, we think it's good to deploy trainees, obviously not in isolation, not by themselves. And in terms of the remote austere thing you talked about, we wouldn't let an attending or a consultant deploy by themselves to an austere location without appropriate training. And until they'd been in that post for at least two years, because not just to the decision to operate, but also the decision to say not operate and transfer back to like a rule three hospital. How would you integrate this into the training program? So you have a, a senior surgical trainee that would then go for six weeks. How did that work out as part of their training program? Well, we just, we spoke to their training program directors and you know, we showed, obviously the first one was a bit tricky, but we showed in the stats. And once the training program directors, the, the civilian NHS training, who were all very supportive, once they saw the experience that the trainees were getting, because they, 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 they took their National Health Service logbooks with them to Afghanistan and they were able to show the numbers of cases. And of course, we record whether a trainer was there scrubbed with them. So it's all trainer scrubbed with you during all those cases. Um, so the there was no cases I'm aware of where a training program director in the UK had any issues. And in fact, you know, they were, it was signed off as part of their formal part of their training program. So trauma consultants are a limited commodity, particularly as we move into multi-domain operations where in warfare, you may have to encounter several different avenues of going against the enemy. How do you think that they're best utilized in the battlefield, particularly when you spread out the operational landscape? The best, as we know from all all forms of surgery, the best results are um, are obtained at high volume centres by high volume surgeons. There is sometimes at one end of the spectrum the desire to have a, a rule two, a very small rule two, with junior physicians, nurses, and the like, you know, close to the battlefield, the forward edge of the battlefield. What we sort of feel is that you know, even though it might be another ten minutes back to a more central rule three type hospital with a CT scanner, lots of blood. Um, we look at when I was in Bastion, you know, we had 400 units of cells, 400 units of plasma for use every day, plus a platelet apheresis. So, so some people might say it's maybe 10 minutes further, maybe even overflying the rule two, if you had one to the rule three. But we think the better care that is given in the rule three outside the SAF environment, the better care given in the rule three environment completely obviates and negates any potential negative aspect of a slightly longer flight. And in fact, it's more the loading and unloading. The actual flight time is usually a smaller percentage of the actual uh, time itself. We know that you know, with, with faster flying helicopters, with faster flying drones, that you don't need so many small rule twos. So we think the best results are I guess the answer to your question is to put the, the trauma surgeons where they can do the most good for the most people. Nimoy said the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the one. So the better resourced, high volume, high resourced surgical team will deliver the be best results. So one of the things that often happens in battle is that the warfighters, medical is not always on the top of their list of priorities. So when you're trying to manage trauma treatment plan in a deployed AOR, What's the role for kind of a centralized trauma czar or a deployed medical director? Well, that's interesting. And I mean, obviously, 
as you're aware, your 75th Ranger unit when they were commanded. General McChrystal, who I met, he came across and speak to us, spoke to us recently about a year or so ago in the, in the UK. He put MED right up there with with sharpshooting, you know, defensive and just and actually sort of the battle skills. That MED was one of the top things that he put there. If you look at the lessons learned, the lessons identified from uh, World War II and also from the Falklands War and also from our time in the Middle East, is that pretty much all those reviews said just what you said. There should be a in-date, competent clinical surgeon, usually, who is in charge of surgical doctrine in, in the theatre. I was lucky enough to be selected as medical director of Camp Bastion in, in 2013. And, you know, we had the the spaceship of, of medicine, best trauma center in the world, et cetera, et cetera. But there was a couple of small, just almost legacy rule twos around the area. One of the place, met some really nice guys I'm still in touch with. There was one called Shukvani, and that was, um, or Shuk Vegas as they called it. And that was only 11 minutes flight time from, from Camp Bastion. It was just to the north of us. It was an old Georgian base. And by Osprey, by 22, it was like 11 minutes. But even in a sort of CH-53 uh, Super Stallion, it was 15 minutes flight time. So I went to the general in charge at the time and said, look, because I went out to visit, said they're great guys and girls, they're doing a great job, but it's only 11 minutes away. And we need to be clear that that 11, those 11 minutes, if someone was directly north, they'd still be better overflying the rule too. So we got the rule too closed and they collapsed into us. And, you know, myself and the physicians, we wrote some papers about that time, about, you know, how you actually influence that in the battlefield. But it has to be someone who has got the, the knowledge and the stats and the sort of the rank to say... This rule too, well-intentioned though it is, well-intentioned people, is not in the right place. So you've had considerable experience on multiple deployments with different types of units. How do we know what type of equipment is needed for special operations surgical teams? Because oftentimes these missions and the teams can only carry so much equipment as they go to complete their mission and are constrained by the nature of the mission. Certainly want tried, tested, and robust equipment. And what you do want it to be psychologically is too different from what surgeons and anesthetists use from from day to day and the training thing we go through training um, training programs we do have to draw a line though because you know we would carry about maybe 380 kilograms of equipment is what we would need to deliver basically damage control surgery to two casualties that's in any in any environment so that's for two cases two cavity damage control surgeries in a chest and an abdomen and the blood that goes with that because below a certain weight if there, if our team leaders say no, we, you only can you can only have 100 kilograms of kit that's all we would turn around and say okay fine that's a medical emergency response team not actually a surgical team there's a there's a limit below which you can't go and that blood's one of the issues you know what we've met teams from other countries not the us where we're doing dcs how much blood are you carrying well we, we don't carry blood well you can't really do damage control surgery without blood. So we carry 20 and 20, 20 of cells and 20 of plasma. We're looking at increasing that. But we would have 10 units of blood for one casualty where two and two at the initial resuscitation, two and two during surgery, two and two in intensive care, or maybe four and four. But we also have this where we didn't have before where we make a futility decision. So once the patient has had six units of cells and six units of plasma, we make a go, no go decision because if we keep transfusing ad hoc, we may not have enough blood left for a, another casualty who could be could be safe. There's a mindset, there's kit, but the kit is pretty simple. We have now changed. Um, we used to carry a chest set, a head set, you know, um, a leg set. We've rationalized all that down into what's called a damage control set. So it's one set of instruments which does one casualties, complete top-to-toe damage control. And it's interesting how, how what 
what, what little things are in that set. Because previously we were carrying 60 kilograms of surgical sets, each damage control set, which could open a chest, open a belly, pack a pelvis, X-fix a femur, X-fix a pelvis, only weighs about 6.3 kilograms. And we've, we've published this as well. And that's that's all you need for one damage control. Um, so so the kit surgically pretty much is a knife and fork, pretty simple and lots of lots of packs and a really good like Hoffman 3 X-Fix, which, which we carry. But the kit we've rationalized, we've got rid of all prima donna stuff, prima donna surgeons who say, I can't do this with this, that that kit or the other. Um, but the kit is familiar still to, um, you know, it's, it's sponges, it's, you know, um, forceps, scissors, lots of packs, clamps, ties, and that's pretty much all you need for damage control surgery. A little while back, you talked about the future of unmanned aerial vehicles providing Kazovac, and that's going to be constrained by capabilities and space. What do you see are the capabilities for those UAVs to provide care to a patient without any other providers on that vehicle while they're being evacuated. Well, so you can pre-prepare the vehicles and the NATO has, so it has its actually already has its safe ride standards and they make the point that with a red cross on the side of a UAV, it is protected by the Geneva convention. Well, that's a fine distinction. Actually, is it, we, we, we've looked at sort of what's called level zero where they're just, there's no one with them, but what we see is the drones get larger um, and have larger payloads, we actually can see where you can put a caregiver on the actual drone itself. And there's really drones. The Israelis have a cormorant drone. Um, what we see is not quite like Skynet, but where we can actually put a, we can put surgical teams in flight and you don't need a pilot. So you could actually, for a small limited scale conflict, have actually a, you know, basically a box, which is a drone, which has the surgical team or the resuscitation in-flight care team on the actual drone itself. And that can deliver in-flight surgical care. So it's just a question of space. I mean, probably ideal is a the casualty and a tactical combat care provider who for the 30, 40 minute flight is also protected, but can can give antibiotics, can give TXA, tranicamic acid, which you know protects the clot through a through an auto-injector. We've got ultrasound machines now, which basically actually the ultrasound probe just plugs into the bottom of your, your iPhone and delivers, you can deliver in-flight ultrasound. We already have, uh, like Prometheus, we've got devices which actually will ultrasonically find the vein and put in an IV. That's certainly doable. You know, there's, there's, there's so much stuff. It almost a few years ago sounds like science fiction, but there's still a lot of stuff can be done in flight. Junctional tourniquets, these flights will be short, 30, 40 minutes, because these drones can you know fly at the 300 knots. Within an hour, you can be 300 miles away. So what other medical advancements or breakthroughs do you see occurring in the next 10 to 20 years that are going to also advance battlefield care? I think pocket handheld oxygen generators, that's going to be the norm, I think, in a few within a few years' time. I imagine we will have heat stable uh, red cells in a or red cell substitutes in a medium that actually promotes clotting as well. There's a lot of talk. I mean, that's that's the, the art of the doable. We already have, we've got freeze-dried plasma. The Dutch have already looked at uh, red cells suspended in um, glycerol types. So you can actually freeze the red cells. Difficulty is the red cells, yes, they carry the oxygen, but there isn't the clot providing plasma there. But it's not too difficult, I think, to get the two things together. Suspended animation is um, something that uh, people people talk about, you know, People say, you know, why don't we have suspended animation now? And anyone who's deployed know how, knows how difficult it is to even get a, a cooled can of soda, let alone actually free someone or cool someone on the on the battlefield. But I think we'll see, and again, actually, industry shock trauma is leading in this in Baltimore, where someone comes in with initially unreconstructable injuries, 
in 20 years' time, the norm may be simply just to cannulate them, drop their temperature to four degrees, repair this, whatever injuries there are, and then get them to somewhere where, in stasis, where there is the blood, the plasma, the rewarming resuscitation to um, to do. Also, we get a lot of lung injuries and, you know, the, the we've had issues with that and extracorporeal membrane oxygenation because you, you can fix most orthopedic things, but if the lungs start to well, stop working, you know, I think perhaps more advanced extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, smaller kits, smaller sets, they may be useful as as well. Clearly, not fighting wars is going to be key. If Skynet does become active, then it'll be drone against drone rather than us if we survive. So I'm going to ask you to look into the future again, maybe 75 to 100 years from now. What's one thing that you'd want someone in the future to hear and remember about your career and experiences in military medicine? I think that, you know, for all the technology and everything else that we have, I think that, you know, as George Magellan Fraser said, wars are fought by tired, dusty men with sore shoulders and aching feet. And whatever war, you know, with all the tech and everything else and analog, sort of digital camouflage and the like, and this is one of the things about Afghanistan, which is a, a lesson again from 100 years ago, is that we were a digital army fighting an analog enemy. And there's no point having digital camouflage if the enemy is just staring over the barrel of an AK-47 or an RPG. Is that tech's going to be good, but there are still some basic skills of teamwork, you know, what to do when... So you still have to have those basic skills. It's like telemedicine is great until the link goes down. There still needs to be basic core skills of resuscitation, team building, team dynamics, shared mindset, surgery, simple surgery done rapidly and done well, and ally that with a, a rehabilitation service back in, in the home in the home country. So I think we'll see, even if it's manned or not, much more rapid transport of patients to hospital may not even be in the um, in, in the same country. There'll be space medicine, probably have colonies on, on Mars. Hopefully the colonies won't fight each other, but that's another, another story. So I think the basic skills, even the last 100 years, they have remained the same. Just resuscitate with blood, stabilize, early surgery, handled with care. Well, we've been speaking with British Army Colonel and consultant in orthopedics and trauma surgery, Mr. Paul Parker. Thank you so much for sharing your experiences and insights with us on War Docs. You're welcome. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of War Docs Military Medical Podcast. We sure hope you enjoyed it. We invite you to subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Please feel free to leave a comment and a five-star review and share this with your contacts on social media. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Find out more information about our show and our guests at our website, wardoxpodcast.com. That's wardoxpodcast, one word, dot com. If you like war stories and medical drama, Wardox has you covered. Spread the word.